following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. He's an American icon who fought in World War II, gave you Martin Lewis, Martha Ray, George Goble, Tennessee Ernie Ford, Andy Williams, Fried Green Tomatoes, Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Declaration of Independence, People for the American Way, and a few TV shows. Maybe you've heard of a couple of these. All in the family, Sanford and Son, Maude, Good Times, The Jeffersons, Hot L, Baltimore, One Day at a Time, Mary Harmon, Mary Harmon, The Dumplings, All's Fair, All the Glitters, Fernwood Tonight, America Tonight, Dippin' Strokes, The Facts of Life, The Baxters, Archie Bunker's Place, Silver Spoons, Glorious, Square Pegs, A.K.A. Pablo, Who's the Boss, 227, Sunday Dinner, The Powers of Beast, 704, Hauser, Channel Umpteen and Three, One Day at a Time on Netflix. All of the above with Norman Lear. It's all of the above with Norman Lear. another version of you so as we talk about we're doing a wraparound a wraparound ladies and gentlemen uh is uh, uh a fellow does a show i'm a guest on that show and uh i'm asked to do kind of a wraparound for you to present you with a gift a package which is this show in this case sheer intelligence Bob Shear, Robert Shear, my great friend, and uh, one of the, one of the great men of the Western world, really. And he does a podcast called Shear Intelligence on KCRW. Yes, on KCRW. KCRW, my favorite. Yes, and that was Paul Hip, um, who uh, does a show with me, uh, all of the above with Norman Lear. And he's come over to help me do this wraparound yeah. uh, with, uh, for Bob Shear, who is, Paul, one of the, uh, he was a great journalist, is it still a great journalist, was a, had a major column in the uh, uh, Los Angeles Times mm-hmm. uh, a great many years ago, for a great many years, uh, was very involved in Ramparts, and uh, a couple of other, uh, it could have been, I can't remember the other titles. But uh, I do remember that I never met anyone who was politically more hip, uh, encyclopedic in his knowledge of, of this country's history in terms of media and so forth. And... Uh, he does a great podcast. I had a great time with him. Merry oh. Christmas, Norman. Oh, thank you, Paul. Merry Christmas. Did you to get you. any presents this morning? Yeah, you know what a present? Uh, one of the presents I got this morning was to learn that Bob Shear's podcast, a podcast in which I guested with him, uh, is airing today, this very day, and it's airing the day before. I am involved with a little thing called the Kennedy Center Honors. It's yes. going to be on CBS. <laughs> it's going CBS, to be on... that's a very popular network. They used to have a show. Didn't you have a couple of shows on CBS? I had a couple years? of shows on CBS. I had, uh, if I can remember correctly, a, a show called uh, uh, All in the Family. Yeah, All in the Family. I had a show called Maud. I had a show called uh, The Jeffersons, a show called Good Times. They were all. Was CBS kind of home? One day at a time, CBS was home, yeah. Yeah. I I <laughs> one moment I said I was uh, I was very pleased to be representing my race. <laughs> I was it's the first time it ever happened. I was the only white dude on the, That's yes, really great. It, it was really it was really it was glorious. That's fantastic. And I might point out that um, it's the first time 
that the president has not been present at this, and that was because when they phoned you and told you about this, you said... I said, uh, because I had seen a number of uh, Kennedy Center honors on CBS over the years, and uh, I said I just couldn't go to the... And I knew that they went to the White House, and the president came uh, to the uh, broadcast. I wouldn't stop the president from coming to them, and I couldn't stop, wouldn't wish to stop the president from doing what he wants to do. But I feel the same way about what I want to do, and I would not go to this White House uh, the way I feel. And when I said so, uh, President Trump elected to uh, go out of town (laughs) on the weekend and not appear at all and disinvite because we did have an invitation to be at the White House. Uh, but disinvite the uh, this Kennedy Center honorees this year. Yeah. I think that the uh, absence, his absence in the picture spoke volumes. Yeah, it was it was perfect. We all had a very, uh, it, it, was, it was a glorious time. And the people who put this together uh, put on, there were two people that I met that are totally, seemed to be totally responsible for, David Rubenstein, who's the chair, chief of the whole Kennedy Center Honor thing, and the woman who runs the whole show, Deborah Rudder. And uh, how they handle, I mean, and their staffs, I mean, they're fabulous. Mm. Uh, so it's, you know, a couple of thousand or more people after this giant event, which will be on CBS tomorrow, uh, we all went to dinner. That won't be on. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to see a couple of thousand people serve dinner at the same moment, yeah. it was, uh, as I say it, I can't believe it. It's, it was magnificent. Originally created by Nick Vanoff, I uh, might add. That's the name. Kennedy Center Honors. That's the name. Nick, it wasn't yeah. a person. It was the the mention of that name because they mentioned Nick Vanoff and George Stevens. Oh, did they mention Yes, that? maybe three times in the course of the uh, of the broadcast. Oh, that's great. And personally, uh, you know, as I moved around and met this person, that person, that person, it was amazing how many times, 40, this was the 40th anniversary, by the way, the 40th anniversary, 40th time they did it, broadcasted, so forth. And virtually every time, they say it's 40 years ago since uh, Nick Vanoff and George Stevens brought us this idea. Mentioned the names constantly. Oh, that's great. And I, As a matter of fact, I, it's hard for me to think of a situation, uh, other events where the originators of the event are mentioned so often and given credit so often. Oh, the, the, yeah. It was well. lovely. I thought of you each time. And, and, and Mia, because it's her of, uncle. Of, of Mia, because it was her relative. She yeah. will be ecstatic to know that. And I'm sure uh, everybody listening to this podcast will be ecstatic to know that Mia will be uh, his wife. This is Paul. We're talking about Paul Hip's wife. Will be stunned and surprised. And that concludes the wraparound. Yeah. So tune in tomorrow to the to the tune in tomorrow because you're already tuning in today, Christmas Day to this. So thank you. Tune in tomorrow to the Kennedy Center Honors on CBS. Norman Lear. All of the above.
Hi, this is Robert Shear with another edition of Shear Intelligence, where the intelligence comes hopefully from my guest. In this case, no question. It's Norman Lear. And, uh, okay, the man's a legend. The man has been a major force <laughs> in making American life livable. And I just want to read, I, I he wrote a book recently, a, a terrific book, and it's called Even This I Get to Experience. And the book came out, and, you know, I hate to say it, I don't, I still buy my books at independent bookstores, but I was on Amazon. I got the electric version, electronic version. I read it. I read it straight through, and that's not a great thing to do because you should take a break and go to the bathroom or something, but I did. I couldn't put it down. And I just, and then a message flashed and said, would you like to be the first one to review it? So I'm going to read what I said then impulsively after reading his book. Truly brilliant in its honesty, as one would expect from the man who transformed television from a myopic center of banality into a medium of accountability. All of the major controversies that confront us today, from war and peace on through race relations, gay rights, gender equality, freedom of and from religion, economic inequality, the right and obligation to challenge power and the powerful, and the reality that the American ideal would always be a work in progress was brought into the American home by this genius. If I was to be buried, I, I would want that on my stone. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not paying for the stone, but I'll talk to the people who are in the know. But but I, I really, I meant it. I meant it. I wrote that at 3 in the morning or something impulsively. I've known you for years. In fact, my wife warned me, don't do these long introductions. But I, I do have to say, I met you on assignment from the Los Angeles Times. I was a young reporter. I think you had four of the top 10 television shows, uh, All in the Family. Uh, what, what else was on then? Uh, Stanford? Stanford Sun. Good times, the Jeffersons. Okay, so you were this overwhelming figure uh, dominating the ratings in television, and the amazing thing is you had you dealt with all the taboo topics. You had a gay football player well, well before anyone ever discussed the issue, and gay issue was not front and center. You dealt with gender inequality, all the things I said before, and you we, had... We just, only a few weeks ago remembered that we did uh, we dealt with transgender on a show called All That Glitters which was uh, a soap opera it's on five times a week uh, the show that followed Mary Hartman Mary Hartman which was very successful All That Glitters wasn't as successful wasn't su I guess wasn't successful but in that show Linda Gray who became a great star. The company that the show was uh, centered around, fictional company, was putting out a uh, cigarette called... They had the Marlboro Woman. And this guy, played by Linda Gray, became a woman. Ah. Oh, my God, it was good. I love that. <laughs> okay, so now, you know, people are used to seeing a lot of wild stuff because of cable and satellite and everything. But people should understand that we're talking about a time when you had three networks. CBS was the most powerful. And they had programming practices, directors, and censorship was alive and strong. And here was this, this guy out there in, in, in California challenging them. 
and in a very profound way, and and you won because you got the ratings. But we, it was a yes. I mean, I would underline that we because of the ratings. It wasn't because I was this, that, or the other thing. It was because the shows delivered viewers. Yeah, but it turned out you got the ratings because it turned out the American public was a hell of a lot more tolerant and and, and serious, and, and even though this was largely comedy, and could entertain a range of ideas. And so, who was it, Bob, who said uh, the name is on the tip of my mind? Nobody ever lost money underestimating the intelligence of the American people. Some wit said that. And I think the establishment, by and large, has gone by that kind of you know edict. Nobody ever lost money underestimating the intelligence. I never believed that. We approvably are not the best educated people in the in the world or country in the world, but we're wise of heart. There's enough smartness to go around if that smartness is appealed to. Well, <laughs> that's a, an important reminder at a time when Donald Trump is president, and uh, you're going to be honored at the... Well, I, it applies, in my mind, more now than ever, because I think of Donald Trump as the middle finger of the American right hand. They said a long time ago as he was running... We see leadership everywhere. We see leadership in, in in the Congress, leadership running for, you know, the Republican uh, or the Democrats. Or we see leadership in business and we see the automobile with the airbag, you know, killing people. But they keep making them and they keep making them. We see pharmaceutical companies and read stories about how badly they're treating us. Leadership stinks. Leader, there is no leadership. It's all short term. I could go on. I will go on. You will go on. But, but let me say, by the way, so you are going to be honored this year at the Kennedy Center on July 4th, right? Yes. Uh, next year. No, no, uh, December 2nd. December 2nd. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Kennedy Center. And you're going to be, this coming July 4th, uh, you're going to be 96. And you're, No, uh, I'm going to be 95. Okay. I'm, I will still be 95. It won't be till the 27th that I'm 96. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so this will be my 95th, 4th of July. Okay. And then, uh, and, but you'll be on at the Kennedy Center, and you actually said you you wouldn't go to the White House for a preliminary thing because you were disapproving of Donald Trump's cuts on the programs for the arts and so forth. But Donald Trump, and, and we we're recording this uh, the week that Donald Trump spoke at the UN, and he stressed patriotism, 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 uh, very similar in my memory to Richard Nixon stressing patriotism. And uh, you have been uh, one. One of your great achievements and your civic achievements is you founded People for the American Way, and you challenged a kind of mindless appeal to patriotism, and you came out for diversity and dissent and questioning and so forth. And I was thinking, watching Donald Trump invoking patriotism, patriotism, the same as Richard Nixon, neither of these guys experienced war uh, and the horror of war, you know, and so forth. You did. You did. You, like George McGovern, who Richard Nixon defeated, mm -hmm. uh, you both were up there in those airplanes flying over Germany in the most dangerous of missions. 
I forget how many George McGovern had, the Democratic candidate now, somewhat forgotten, but a, a truly heroic figure in every aspect of his life and a man of reason and common sense. And, and yet his patriotism was challenged by Richard Nixon, but it was George McGovern who won the Distinguished Flying Cross and, mm-hmm. and, and who flew, I think it was 53 or something, really dangerous missions. And when Norman Lear, you, got involved with people for the American way, you were attacked all over the place. Who is this, you know, uh, character and he's disloyal and blah, blah, blah. And the fact is, and you at the time, it wasn't until your book came out, you really addressed this question of your own war record. I, ne- I recall you never brought it up. When I interviewed what you, What do you mean? You it's not in the book? Of course of it's course, in the No, book. I said when I read it in the book. Oh. But when I interviewed you some 40 years ago for the LA Times, you didn't mention it. Yeah. Uh, and you didn't mention it when you were in the middle of a lot of controversies and so forth. And, and yet... When World War II came along, that was the war where, where without question... We were the good guys. I mean, there was no question about that war, that we had been attacked. That didn't mean you had to go. You were a kid, 20-year-old kid at Emerson College, right, back east. And your parents thought, you know, why you, right, as I recall. You wrote that somewhere. And uh, you, you went. You said— Because I thought when Norman, when you're 95, you want to be able to say you fought in World War II. <laughs> yeah, and you did, and I did, and, and so so as long as we're touching on that, t- tell us, you know, because you haven't talked about it a lot in the book, you do a, a bit. Uh, what did it mean, and 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 what did it do to your thinking? I mean, well, you're up there. Let, tell let, us let what me, you did. Let me start by saying this is all uh, stuff you've read in the book. But when I was uh, nine years old, my father went to prison. When I was nine or ten years old, my dad was away. I heard Father Coglin on radio. He was a a, a Catholic priest uh, who uh, was anti-Semitic, pro-fascist. As it turned out, I don't know if we were using the word fascist at this time, but Hitler was coming along, and he liked what was going on in Germany, and he hated uh, Jews, and he said so in his fashion. And it scared the hell out of me. But... I had one saving grace. I was in school. There were civics classes. I want to repeat that and repeat that and repeat that. We had civics classes. We were learning in school the promises that the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the preamble to it, all of those words meant and made the most promises that were made to all of us equal justice under the law, equal opportunity in America under the law. I often think we were in love with America because we understood this. We all love our country today. I wouldn't challenge anybody's patriotism. But we were in love with what America was about then because we were learning as kids what America was about. And those promises we have yet to deliver on are the promises that continue to sustain me. Someday, we're going to get a hold of ourselves and deliver on those promises. Such as? We were rehearsing at Emerson College uh, on a Sunday morning a play called Two Orphans. I remember that so clearly. Gertrude Binley Kay was our director. She was uh, you know, professor at the college. She wore huge hats, and she talked in a Boston Brahmin kind of fashion. 
that's a pretty good imitation of Gertrude Binley Kay. And uh, somebody came running in at 10.30 or so in the morning to say they had just heard on the radio that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And, uh, and Gertrude Binley Kay wished us all to go down to Boylston Street to that Japanese antique store and throw rocks through the window. That's was her e eruption. Uh, my eruption was, I've got to join the military. I mean, we weren't at war that day. We were going to be at war in two days, as it turned out, uh, when FDR declared war. And uh, I just had to be a part of it. And so... Out of everything that I'd said preceding that, out of what I think of as in love with what we were about. When you say part of it, and your experience was really quite similar to, to, to George McGovern. McGovern was a divinity student, and he uh, volunteered, and he was a pilot, and, you know, uh, heroically, you know, crash-landed his plane to save the troops and did all these bombing missions and so forth. And, you know, flying over Germany was the most dangerous thing you could do. And you ended up in that position. Can I tell you a story about flying over Germany that's yeah. very recent? Yeah. Two years ago, about two months before the Veterans Day parade in New York, the Air Force had learned that I had flown, that my group had flown the longest mission in the European theater. There were two theaters of war, the Asian, the Eastern, and the Western. And uh, from Foggia, Italy, where I was stationed, to Berlin, it was the longest mission. I, it was flown twice. I flew it once. They also learned that uh, Tuskegee Airmen had flown with us to protect us. You know, they were in P-51s. We were in bombers, B-17s. And uh, I loved the Tuskegee Airmen because they seemed to fly closer to us. We felt more protection when we saw their red tails, and sometimes we saw their black faces. Tuskegee Airmen was the only African-American group in the Air Force. They asked us, oh, and they found Roscoe Brown was his name, university president, African-American, had been a Tuskegee Airman and flown that mission. So the two of us led the parade, the Veterans Day parade, two or three years ago. Roscoe has since passed, I'm sorry to say. But that was the thrill of thrills, to meet him, to stand there and shake his hand in front of that crowd and then, you know, travel up Fifth Avenue. But this is also a significant part of the story. Lynn and I, my wife and I, were in Europe a year after that. And our friends, the Emersons, were the ambassadors in Berlin still sitting in and they had some John, time. John Emerson from John Russia. and yeah, Kimberly yeah. Emerson, yeah. and uh, they invited us to come uh, and stay with them for a few days. We were flying into Berlin, Lynn and I, commercially, and I was remembering the only other time I had flown. I didn't go into Berlin. We bombed it. I was the radio operator, and I had the top gun. The radio operator was the closest position to the bomb bay doors. 
So I was the guy who leaned over, had to get up a little and lean over to see that the last bomb left the bay, and then I could tell the pilot he could close the bomb bay doors. On every mission, that was part of my job, to let the pilot know the last bomb had left the bay. So I had the experience of, on every mission of looking down and watching our bombs leave our bay and then gather with all the bombs from all the other uh, B-17s, hundreds of bombs dropping. And I remember thinking, hundreds of bombs, they don't all hit a target. One of them hits a farmhouse. I even imagined a family sitting around the table. And I have a tendency to want to bite my lip as I'm saying this with the frustration of it. But I remember each and every time thinking, what if it hits a farmhouse and thinking, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't care. Then I also recall a day later or hours later, I don't know, but at some point thinking, if anybody came to me with a piece of paper and a pencil and said, Mr. Lear, sign this, and forever, you will never, you, you, you will never doubt yourself. You will always not care if a bomb hit a family. And I thought to myself, I, I, I could never sign that. I would never sign that. That's not me. But the fact of my life is I've never been tested. I've never been tested, thank God. So all I know is in my life, I'm on record you know, 35 times we dropped bombs. I blew 52 missions, but 35 times I didn't care. In thinking about that, being utterly amazed by it, it still is a big lesson about the human condition. It's a lesson that a lot of uh, veterans from that war, that's why it's been called the best generation and so forth. Uh, I remember my own brother, my half-brother, my father was German, from Germany, and my brother was also bombing Germany, uh, and uh, my brother Arnold, and uh, Eighth Air Force. Yeah, and he uh, he's bombing our hometown, uh, my father's hometown. And I've been to Germany many times. I've talked to my father's brother, who actually was in the German army and fought on the Russian front. And I I know my brother was so impacted by that experience and other things that he saw during the war, that he became a pacifist. He wouldn't even let his kids play with war toys after. You know, he felt, felt very uh -huh. strongly about that. Uh, but, what, but it was interesting because Japanese people were rounded up and put in camps and certainly not trusted to fight unless they were translators that could be used in the war against Japan. German-Americans, which were the largest immigrant group, there was no problem about their being in the Air Force fighting. And yet they learned a lot of lessons, all the people fighting. And, and that was where we got the civil rights movement, had some energy after that. There had been a civil rights movement before. But that was a segregated armed forces, as you point out, with the Tuskegee Airmen. And that contradiction of we were fighting for freedom <laughs> and so forth. And then you come back. I, I don't want to tell, say what motivated you, but I think you were, were certainly part of a generation that said, wait a minute. We were supposed to be on the side of freedom. Why do we still have segregation? Why do we still have these problems in this society? And you, in your television writing, 
Well, so, that's this point I was making about not caring as those bombs dropped. That's we have to face our humanity, who we are as human beings, our capacity. I think we each of us have the capacity for expressing, or if not doing, the evil any other human being is capable of doing. Time for a break in this conversation with Norman Lear. We'll be right back. We're back with Norman Lear discussing an incredible life in the television industry and political life. So if we segue from coming back from, from the war and then your television career, uh, where you start as a writer and basically writing, what, comedy, and then— You know, I didn't set out to be a writer. I, I came to Los Angeles to be a, uh, a press agent. The only role model or the only person I considered a role model— was an uncle who used to flick me a quarter. Or maybe he did it once or twice, and I made a thing of it. But I remember clearly, I wanted to be a guy who could flip a quarter. He was a press agent. I didn't even know what a press agent was at that time, but I wanted to be a press agent. So when I was overseas, I went into Fojin. I stood behind a—I spoke a little bit of Italian—behind a printer, and it, letter by letter— uh, we did this one-page uh, composition about uh, Norman Lear, this press agent uh, in 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 the making, who's going to be uh, let out of the service and finish his missions, and wanted to be a press agent. Anyway, I sent this. I still have a copy of it. It's florid. <laughs> and uh, sent it to my Uncle Jack. He sent it out to a group of uh, press agent co companies. And uh, I had one uh, offer to come to work and one offer to come to uh, a meeting to talk about work. So I had a job before I got out of the Army, and I was a press agent for a while, and I was fired twice. I was fired once, and then a the guy kept me for a reason, and he fired me again because of the things that I caused to be printed. <laughs> what was that? I mean, were you, uh... Well, nobody remembers these names, but uh, among our clients at uh, the Ross Agency in New York uh, were uh, Moss Hart, who was a great playwright, and Kitty Carlisle, who was an actress and a, a bit of a singer, and but she was a major person and a star of a television show, called Guess My Line, or... Oh, What's that? My Line? What's My Line. Yeah. What's My Line. You guessed what that person's occupation yeah. was. So I wrote of the two of them. Uh, they might have known each other. I didn't know whether they knew each other or not, but I wrote of them that Moss Hart was gifted with a pocket flask, was gifted by Kitty Carlisle with a pocket flask measured to his hip while he napped. And Dorothy Kilgallen, a famous uh, columnist of the time, printed it. Somebody must have said to Kilgallen after it was in print, what the hell is that? And she called George Ross and she said, who wrote that? I want that kid fired. So I was making $40 a week. He took me, <laughs> he took me down to 35 but he kept me. Weeks later or months later, 
we had another show. We had a show on Broadway called A, a Review, uh, musical acts and comedy acts and so forth. Not a story, but a review. And uh, one of the acts was Buster Shaver and his midgets. And the lead midget was uh, a, a woman named Olive. So I wrote and, and Kilgallen again printed that uh, Buster Shaver was seen shopping Fifth Avenue, he on foot, she on a St. Bernard. <laughs> this time Kilgallen called, and this time I was really fired. So we moved to Connecticut, stayed there for a little while, and then came out to California. Uh, oh, and I started to say, I came out to be a press agent like my uncle, but I ran into Ed Simmons, and our wives were friends, and they went to they went to a movie one night when we each were babysitting our little kid, and uh, he wanted to be a comedy writer. He was working on an idea he had. He asked me to help him, and I did. We wrote this thing that evening. The girls came back from the movies like. 10.30, and I said, let's go out and see if we can sell it, because there were a bunch of nightclubs then. Four, five, six blocks away at Beverly near Fairfax, there was a place called the Bar of Music, and uh, there was a piano player, I used to remember her name well, who did insults and jokes and so forth, playing the piano and so forth. And we sold it to her for 35 or $30 or whatever the hell it was. And uh, and we started to write together every evening. And that was it? That was it. And so you then had a show. I mean, tell, tell, you know, people don't remember the impact of your shows on, on CBS. But it was incredible. And, and I use them in teaching. I show some of the old shows and the issues you dealt with. Uh, well, but those issues we dealt with were the issues American families were dealing with. We didn't invent We didn't puff But anything. they weren't talking about them. And you dared. I mean, I mean, I remember because when I came to interview you in, in the 70s and I was working for the L.A. Times and I, you know, I didn't know you personally and I went to see you. And you already, not already, you were this enormous legend at that point. You owned television. My God, you were you're the golden guy. And yet, you weren't doing it by cheapening. You weren't doing it by pandering. You weren't doing it by selling out. Uh, you were doing it by raising the bar. It was astounding, you know. Uh, astounding is the only way I could describe it. And I wasn't the only one that felt that way. The reason they sent me to interview you, the LA Times sent me out, is who is this guy? I mean, with no exaggeration. You are the major force that changed television in America. It was banal. It was it's hard, boring. It's hard for it, me to see it. I, I know, Norman. And, and you I know, know, I, I, but I want to be, want to, for people listening to this, I want to make it really clear. Television was boring. Now television is exciting. People expect television to be exciting. They expect it to be well-written. They expect it to be provocative. But back and, then, and it is. I yeah. think this is the golden age. You know what? It's so hard to imagine and believe. We had three and then four networks. Nobody wanted for content. Americans didn't want for content with four networks. And uh, today we have, what, 400 networks? I don't know. I mean, more content than I can keep up with. I mean, and I'm talking about content that people tell me, Norman, you mean you haven't seen? 
And I look at it, and it's terrific, just as my good friends suggested it would be. But I haven't got the time. I don't think life affords the time to see it all. Right. But back then in the day, when you were doing this, television, yes, we were all were excited. There were these, this, this image that had come along in the 50s. Uh, but uh, and it was getting, you know, it was color, it was getting moving and everything, but it was stilted, it was very safe. That's the operative word. And at these three networks, you had these guys programming practices, and they were censors. They had to prove everything, right? And yes. they and they did very much underestimate the audience. Could you just take us through some of those controversies? I mean, you know, like gay rights, for God's sake. I mean, you dared to. You know, you had Archie Bunker confronting his best friend in a bar who was a football player, and he admires this guy and everything, and they're watching a boxing match, and the guy turns out to be a homosexual, uh, you know, <laughs> right? And, 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 I'll never uh, forget that scene. They are hand-wrestling at the moment. <laughs> the, uh, the football player uh, tells him, Archie, uh, have you ever seen me with a woman? Have you ever heard me talk about a woman? We know each other a lot of years. Bah, that Archie just shakes his head. He can't believe. The guy said, no, no, really. And O'Connor's face is he understands that his good friend, the football player, is gay. Oh, my God. Golden. Golden. <laughs> was. What was the response to the network? Any questions or... You know, it's one of those things where they were they were frightened to death of it, and I shouldn't do it. But anyway, we did it, and in that case, I think we were heralded. Of course, there was some male. Some people didn't like it, but for the most part, I, I don't remember a big contest about that. The same thing with Maud's abortion. You know, Maud's abortion took place in, let's say, October. The show went on the air. Nobody knew what, what what the subject was until they saw it on the air. There was very little reaction to it. I mean, there was some mail, of course, but there was a lot of right on. Maud, thank God we aired this for it. When the show went into reruns in June and everybody knew that this episode about Maud's abortion was coming, that's when the far right and the religious right knew what was coming, and that's when they organized. And they lay down in front of Mr. Uh, what's his name, who owns CBS Paley's car in New York. They laid down in front of my car. They carried on and carried on and carried on, and there was a ton of mail. And you know, But that's only—it didn't come naturally. It came from pocketed groups who were— there to complain. You know, let me suggest something, and this is certainly true of George McGovern, and I, I want to take it back to that World War II veteran experience. You, no one could tell you you were un-American. I mean, we had a House Un-American Activities Committee. We'd had a blacklist in Hollywood. Uh, but there was a whole group of people, particularly these veterans from World War II, who said, don't you tell me what being, what being an American is. Okay, and and you had that confidence, just like George McGovern did. You know, wait a minute, I was there. <laughs> I, you know, I fought for this country, 
And uh, I had Ron Kovic in my class the other night. You know, he has three-quarters of his body paralyzed from his wounds in, in Vietnam. And you can't, no one's going to intimidate Ron Kovic and tell him you can't speak mm-hmm. out and object to the Iraq war or object to the bombing. He said, hey, I gave three-quarters of my body to this in, the, in this wheelchair, so don't tell me. Well, you guys had that confidence, that generation that came back from World War II. You weren't going to put up with a lot of garbage, you know. I think there were a lot of—you you stood out, but there was a whole group of people. But it's, but it's people like you who point to it. I, I didn't operate from that base or think about that. Oh. We did what we had to do. But you had a certain courage that you were going to do it your way, and no one was—I mean, look, this— I remember the atmosphere when, when the so-called religious right and, you know, the Falwells and everybody went after— you, uh, it, it could be very intimidating, and uh, you know, uh, you you just took it and you started this incredible organization, People for the American Way. You got even Gerald Ford and <laughs> Republicans like oh, that. Oh, you is, just reminded me when you said Gerald Ford of I, something I want to do now. I'd love to do it on my ninety fifth Fourth of July. Uh, I did a show in uh, People for the American Way was one year old. And uh, in 1982, or in 81, and we started People for in 80, I did a show on ABC called I Love Liberty. And the only way I got it on the air, proving it to be in advance, uh, nonpartisan, because I wanted to do the most patriotic show, take back the flag, and I think the flag in the Bible today in America is considered right. The the far right owns the flag in the Bible because they talk about it all the time. I don't think you have to have a lapel pin uh, to be a good American or to, you know, to, for people to know you love your country. So I, I got Gerald Ford, that's what reminded me of this, and Lady Bird Johnson to co-chair the event. On the screen, co-chair the event. I had Barry Goldwater and Jane Fonda on the same stage. I had John Wayne. Oh, my God. It was, I think, if I was to be buried again, and I won't be. (laughs) But is it 95 that causes me to think about that? No, I've told this story too often. (laughs) And I've said it the same way. If I was buried with with a piece of tape, it would probably be I Love Liberty. I love that so much. And we need it now to take back those, to talk about America without sounding like Donald Trump. So let's talk about Donald Trump a little bit because he is a product of television. Les Moonbees, the head of CBS, the same network you worked for during the campaign, he said, you know, uh, Donald Trump may not be good for America, but he's, he's great for, C- for CBS. He's great for CBS. Bring it on. Bring it on, you know, the ratings and so forth. So you, a man who reinvented television and, you know, great comedy, but you made it, in the best sense of the word, responsible, <laughs> concerned, uh, educational, in the best sense, not the boring sense, but in the best sense, exciting sense. And here's a guy who comes along, yes, we could say television is great, but it's also not always great. And uh, bullying, uh, as represented by Donald Trump, was celebrated by television. I would think that's the main characteristic of you know, a show like The Apprentice and so forth. And it takes this guy to the presidency. 
He's a creature of television. What, what is your appraisal of, of him? You know, as I hear you say that, I'm thinking uh, it had to come to this. <laughs> this uh, fixation on short-term thinking and what's good for this moment. And he's the ultimate example of that. He seemed like, you know, if you want to say fuck you, and you, you, with your the middle finger or the right hand, to go back to that metaphor, it happens in a flash. You know, you, you, you think it, you do it, you mean it from the bottom of your heart, you know, boom, take that. And I honestly think the American people were saying, take that. You know, and they gave us the worst, well, the worst example of that was running. The best example of the worst <laughs> was running. And, that's, and they said, take that. And I look around today, and there isn't sufficient reason to change your mind. If you are living an emotionally crowded, difficult, economically life, you know, somebody working your ass off with a couple, three kids you adore, worried about their future, uh, living, you know, as, as I don't know what percentage of Americans are living, finding it so difficult, uh, through and for no fault of their own. I mean, there were people, I, I, I'm hearing the people in my head that were with Carl with no fault of their own, but too many are born into it. We live in a, in a class-divided society that I suspect when you came out of the Army, because I'm old enough to remember, I was a young kid, <laughs> uh, you know, you got a bunch of years on me, but I remember the optimism, you know, with Levittown, with the little houses, you know, the jobs were coming back, opportunity, you know, there's, you know yes, the Civil Rights Movement was starting as a reminder, that they weren't going to get a break and women were, you know, kept in paid less. And so we all know the imperfections. But there was a feeling that this country, the old de Tocqueville celebration of an ever-expanding middle class and opportunity in the public schools working, and you had that. And now we've accepted a situation where just a large number of people, because they use public schools, the thing we loved, they use, oh, those are not good. You've got to send your kid to a special private school, and you've got to know somebody who will get you that advantage. And I, I, what you just said is, is really the key thing. The fact is these people got screwed for the last 20 years because of policies that were followed. We know that, you know, that freed Wall Street greed and so forth. And one of the things I've always liked about you, Norman, is you are deliberately nonpartisan. <laughs> you're not indifferent, but you're nonpartisan. I remember you, you got me to support a guy, John Anderson, who was an independent Republican from, I think, Rockville, Illinois, or something. You've always been, you know, hey, our friends can be up to bad stuff. Our friends could be doing mischief. And I think— I, I, I like hearing that. <laughs> Thank you. No, but I, I mean— I hope that's true. But, but you were— I mean, But the, John Anderson, I do, of course, remember John Anderson. Yeah, but I remember all along— Well, when you're even reaching out to John Wayne or reaching out to Gerald Ford. Well, Reagan. So, Reagan. Remember oh, our history, uh, yours <laughs> and mine, with, with Ronald Reagan? Just to set the stage, because it is sort of historically interesting— I had interviewed uh, the first President Bush uh, when he was running. He was running against Reagan. 
And I had interviewed him after he won the Iowa primary. This was for the 1980 election. On that, he uh, had said that he believed that you could win a nuclear war. That was the controversy. And then I did the interview. Well, we have a president right now. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. But what happened then was, and I was, uh, for the Los Angeles Times, I was then interviewing Reagan, and I had been conducting these interviews over, you know, because they're busy and you got to hit 20 minutes here and a half out there. And then you had the idea to send a television crew. And the Reagan people accepted it. They were on the plane, and they allowed this portion. And the grilling was about winnable nuclear war. And did the Russians believe in it and their fallout shelters <sighs> and all that stuff. And I must say, I had met Reagan much earlier because when he was running for governor, I had interviewed him for Ramparts magazine. And again, I found he was a guy who would talk to you and he was confident in his views and he didn't pull rank. I, I, I actually have very fond memories of Reagan as an individual in that regard. So when you set this thing up, and I think you got their permission you knew Nancy, right? You knew yes. Ronald Reagan, right? And so there was your crew on the plane. And that normally would make a candidate very nervous. You know, why is this being televised by this crazy guy, Sheer, and I'm talking to him, and I got Norman Lear's crew here. And, and he was not flamoxed at all about this. And, uh, he, you know, yes, he handled himself. He stated his position, and he obviously believed it, you know. And uh, it, it was quite amazing. And he had also been briefed, you know, that we could shoot down these things. And Edward Teller, who he was close to, and believed we could have Star Wars defense. So it was an important exchange. And uh, as, as I recall, you uh, you knew Nancy quite well. Did did you know Ronald? Well, as a result of, yeah, you know, I don't remember how I did know Nancy quite well enough that she invited me to present to her when. A group uh, representing this a John Wayne Hospital somewhere in Texas, and they were honoring Nancy at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. The only time I've ever been in a uh, in a ballroom with uh, tuxedoed men in ten gallon hats. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And Nancy asked me to present her that evening, and I did. She also she and Parencio. Jerry Parencia, my long-term partner who passed recently and was an ardent Republican, they were flying up to Ronald Reagan's memorial at the library and invited me to come along. So I sat with Nancy and Jerry at his memorial. I could have been the only... I started, I was thinking to say, the only liberal... But I consider myself a bleeding-heart conservative. I don't think of myself as a liberal because I think you will not mess with my Bill of Rights, my Declaration, my Constitution, my First Amendment. I think that's as conservative as you can get, you know, if you really mean it. Then comes the question of affording equal opportunity and equal justice and so forth. That's where all the work comes in. And my heart bleeds in that direction. But again, sticking to this nonpartisan or, or, you know, I I know you've taken some heat for it. And it's, it's interesting because it's very easy to demonize the other side and, you know, virtue is all on your side. And I think one of your 
great strengths, after all, all in the family. You took a conservative, right, Archie Bunker, and you had him be human, you know, and you tried to understand what made him tick. And and that's why the show has such great credibility. Conservative people enjoyed watching that mm-hmm. show, you know, because he raised a lot of their concerns. And and I think we've gotten into a place where we think Democrat. You know, many people I know they seem to think the Democratic Party is the center of virtue, and and uh, it's true we don't have too many moderate Republicans around in the mold of Dwight Eisenhower or some of the other folks, but it's too easy. And I was just wondering about how you regarded this last election. I mean, you had Bernie Sanders, who not that different than you actually, another old Jew right, from back east, uh, and uh, raising a whole bunch of questions. And then you had uh, the anointed candidate, Hillary Clinton. And, you know, uh, uh, how, how did you look at that whole political choice? And The American people, those suffering, and I always think of it in emotionally crowded lives, as I try to imagine what it would be to live like so, like most Americans have to live, and struggle to keep a roof over your head and and uh, your kids in school and their future, and then, oh, my God, and not find leadership. You know, I, I was spoke at the Bohemian Grove. Do you, you know about the, what the Bohemian Grove is. Yeah, that's is. where rich men gather and they it's piss on Redwood trees. largely Republican and, and, you know, several thousand, and it, it was... And I talked about what you mentioned, Dwight Eisenhower, and I said, why are seven, this was when 17 people were running for the uh, Republican nomination. And I said, why do I never hear the name Dwight David Eisenhower? Five-star general, led us through World War II, two-term Republican president, responsible for the interstate highway system. You know, it, it kept us out of several other near wars, and, and it, you know, there are people who find fault with him, but he was all of what I just mentioned, and he's never, ever, you never hear his name invoked by 17 people running. You hear Reagan and Reagan and Reagan, and you hear Bush, Bush, Bush. Uh, you hear even Gerald Ford, but you don't hear why. And the reason was he warned us about the military-industrial complex that I think is choking us to death now. And in his first draft, which I saw, I don't remember how I saw or heard at his uh, library in Kansas, he called it the military-industrial congressional complex. One of my bravest actions as a child was wearing a I like Ike button in the Bronx. <laughs> I never even met a Republican, but I like this guy. And uh, I.F. Stone, who was this columnist I used to read in the, I forget the name of the paper, the PM or something, one of the newspapers in New York, I, the legendary journalist, he came out for Ike. And uh, I.F. Stone argued, this guy knows war. He's a general. And, and we need peace. We need somebody, and, and Eisenhower was, by the way, against dropping uh, the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He uh-huh. said it was not justified, it was not necessary, he was opposed to it. And he was very concerned about the misuse of military power. The irony Look at that, the Republican president, the, <laughs> oh, he was, the Republican was against the dropping of the bombs, and the haberdasher Democrat 
Yeah. Dropped, dropped the, the bombs. Dropped the bombs. And by the way, it's interesting because it was supposed to be to save guys like you, right? You were yes. involved in the war and so forth. And, and one of my great heroes, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the great beat poet, happened to be an uh, anti-sub commander in Normandy and everything, another guy with war experience. And then they shipped him off to Japan. And he was he visited Nagasaki after the bombing. And that devastation is what, you know, he again, like with others, it turned him into a lifetime pacifist. He was just so shocked. And yet he was his life was supposed to be saved by dropping the bomb, basically killing civilians. These were not military uh, targets. Norman, you're, you're 95 years old. It's just kind of almost going to be a century. I'm going to be there when, you know, uh, unless I kick off before, uh, I'm going to be there when, when we celebrate your century of life. You, you were born in 22, what, what, uh, just a few years after the end of World War I, for God's sake. You saw World War II. You've been fighting the good fight, you know, both creatively, you know, and politically and so forth, and everything. Did you ever imagine we'd be at this moment now with Donald Trump being no. president? No, I never, I never imagined. But that doesn't mean I don't believe I understand. I really believe what I've been saying. The American people didn't want what's going on now. And they didn't vote for what's going on now. They voted against what led up to what's going on now. And as I watch the Republicans, as we sit here now, they in Washington are shoving this anti-Obamacare bill, which I can't find a good word for even among Republicans. <laughs> they're doing it, but they're not talking about how great it is for the American people. None of them. You mean ending Obamacare? Amending, yes, or eliminating Obamacare in in favor of whatever the hell it is, some bill. You can call it Ryan Care. They're not proud of it. I don't. I don't hear anybody raving about what's good for America in this bill. They're just pushing the bill to get rid of the other. I mean, the American people are bereft. And in their emotionally crowded lives, they don't have the time to figure it all out. My degree of sophistication, which is not at all as uh, larger as my career would suggest, you know, I struggle myself to understand. I have basic beliefs when I talk about, you know, describe what I mean by, uh, by being a bleeding heart conservative. Like I see so clearly what is so great about the America we fought for in World War Two, and how little of it is motivating the Congress, Democrats and Republicans. Time for a break with this conversation with Norman Lear. We'll be right back. We're back with Norman Lear discussing an incredible life in the television industry and political life. You never lost the common touch. That that's and I think is absolutely critical here because you never demonized ordinary – I remember because I, I traveled with Jerry Falwell when he was attacking you and I profiled him and so forth. I, I interviewed Richard Nixon uh, in 84 and all that and I had you in my mind. I want to say this. I, I, I know you object when I say you're a role model and, you know, but I, and okay, I don't want to get into a big discussion. But I learned from you, you know, from when I first met you, this thing you've been stressing all through this interview – 
don't underestimate the average person. Don't underestimate people. And that's what informed your art and is why you were so successful, not just in finding an audience, because you can find an audience by pandering and so forth, Mm -hmm. but by raising the bar. I think, I mean, if I were to summarize your life, you know, uh, you were the opposite to the Barnum thing, you know, the sucker born every minute. You, you, You actually believed in the American people. And I guess people everywhere. I do. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and <laughs> everywhere. And 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 uh, and the reason, one reason I'm doing these podcasts. I mean, this this is supposed to be a study of American originals. I say out of the crazy quilt of American culture. And I haven't even asked you. We can. You might want to mention why your father went to jail when you were nine years old. But we've all got these varied histories. We've mm-hmm. all got different religions and different ethnic backgrounds and different, different, different. But somehow in this crazy quilt of American life, we have these originals, okay? Some of the people we've talked to about, you know, uh, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, you know, is, is the one example. Another 95-year-old, by the way, who's still going strong. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. And what I try to capture in these podcasts is what what is it about this American experience that has created these American, whether it's Willie Nelson, who I interviewed, or it's Oliver Stone, you know, or uh, other folks. And... Uh, Dolores Huerto, I interviewed from the farm workers. Oh, God, she's one of my heroes. Yeah, and 11 children, and she out there organizing the field. Do you remember the name Marsha Hunt? Yeah. yeah. She's going to be 100 on Monday. Why? Well, Marsha Hunt was an actress. Uh, You have to Google her. You Google her, you're going to find a very pretty woman with a long history of civil rights activities. And I think she suffered the blacklist. If she didn't suffer the blacklist, she was among the people who were most affected by it. And uh, never stopped speaking her mind, never stopped loving the country the, the way I feel. I mean, she expressed in her way everything I'm talking about. And she's turning 100 <laughs> on Monday. So... I am going to stop by and give her a hug. People have made fun of Hollywood. They, you know, obviously is the source of all kinds of scandal and stories and so forth. And I've been, I came to L.A. in 76. I came out to California to go to graduate school, oh, 59 to Berkeley. But then I came down here when I first met you to work at the L.A. Times in 76. And I must say, I, I know I've been told I've been naive, but I've met, <laughs> actually, not only the most interesting, but really the finest or some of the finest people I've met in, in this lifetime right here in this much maligned Los Angeles community, mm-hmm. I, I really. And I remember our lunches, you know, with Murph Goldberger, who was actually a major physicist and, yeah. and concerned about nuclear weapons, and Stanley Scheinbaum, who was the police commissioner who fired Daryl Gates over the racism of the police department. He was a regent. And, you know, Warren Beatty, who had the courage to make a movie like Reds, and, and, and you know, and, and really uh, fascinating yeah. people. And there was never really small talk. We were sort of committed to having small talk, but it never was small talk. It was all about saving the world or what's going on. I mean, Harold Willens would be at some of those I was meetings. just thinking about him. Yeah, and, and just, you know, this. I could go down. And you mentioned Jeff Cowan, whose father had been head of CBS and who was the head of the Voice of America, I think the second, and Jeff went on to. The, but these people, whether they were successful, whether they were born rich, whether they made money in Hollywood, whether they had criminals in their 
background, you know, like your father did, you know, get in yeah. trouble and, and so forth. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, and, and this is where people tell me I'm naive, I always felt idealism, maybe sometimes misplaced idealism, but I always felt idealism, and, and this is with your first and second wives and and. Everyone else, I've, I mean, a lot of people I've met, my own wife, who was the Associated of the Times, not as a keynote. I mean, the conversations that I, and in your house where you've had one speaker after another, it's been a great forum in Los Angeles, the Lear household, you know, and you bring all these people. And, and one movement after another, whether it was civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, and so forth. And I felt, hey, wait a minute. Out of this den of iniquity of Hollywood <laughs> and L.A. has come a fountain of idealism. How the hell did that happen? You know? I wonder if it doesn't exist in every community. This is a community that happens where, you know, I, I was born in uh, or raised in Hartford, Connecticut, which was an insurance community. They were not celebrated, you know, in the newspapers or radio or television or so forth. But I have to believe that the same ratio of uh, interested and interesting people, of people who are doing what exactly what they're, you know, the people in this industry have been doing, uh, some getting caught doing it brilliantly, some getting caught doing it poorly, you know, or doing what they shouldn't do. Uh, I don't know. People are people and cultures are cultures and they and and the culture of Hartford probably at essence if one studied it wouldn't be all that different from the culture in Hollywood. What what is the get end game? I mean we are in your case approaching a century of life. World War One, right now to Donald Trump, and who knows what's coming in the next years. And you keep yourself in good health. You got your mind is. Trust me, I interviewed you in '76. Your mind is clearer, and I mean this advisedly. I'm being really serious. I interviewed you, <laughs> so it's now do the math. It's what 40 years ago or something. You know more. Uh, you're more interesting than you were then. I, I, I honestly believe this. You've seen a lot more. Well, then I should be. I well, mean, yeah, but the, you know, as another old timer, you here, don't stop you know, learning. Yeah, but everybody tells you, you know, you're getting, the, you're going to forget, and yeah. you don't know this, and you're slowing down, and so forth. The fact is, you have not slowed down. You really have not. I mean, I'm yeah. not bullshitting you. And and I've talked to you many times over the years. You've never been better than you are now at least my experience with you. I want you to phone my home and tell my wife that. Yeah, yeah. You do the same with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we all know that. But the, the point is, uh, you know, okay, but you're up against the reality, okay, because we, we've lost that faith in traditional religion, primitive religion, fundamentalist religion. I don't know if any of them believe it or they wouldn't do what they say anyway. I mean, it's a question I had about a lot of the religious right. If you really believe you're going to be yeah. judged and you've read the, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke, you know, something doesn't connect here, you know, because Jesus tells you in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you better worry about that other one that's not in your tribe. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and you better pick them up and take care of them, take them to the inn and, and feed them. And that's how you will be judged, whether you're going to have this eternal life. Well, by that standard, you're certainly going to have an eternal life. But I suspect you don't 
uh, fully subscribe to what might be a more simple view of fundamentalist religion, you are 95, okay? And I'm asking you a question I ask myself. I'm 81, so I'm not, yeah. you know, I can't give myself, I've had a, few, had a few operations and so forth, so I understand about mortality. How do you deal with mortality? How do you deal with, it's one thing we haven't learned anything more about, right? Science has not helped us. We had the eclipse. We now believe in the eclipse. We're not. I have thought for a long while, uh, I, I'll express it this way right now, but it's been in my mind this way for for a long time. Uh, the fact of my life and yours is that it's taken me, in my case, it's taken me 95 years, a number of months, weeks, days, hours, and so forth, to see you just shift your weight in that chair, to look at you right now uh, and hear my voice uh, saying exactly what I'm saying. And uh, as the seconds tick off, it's taken me every fucking second of 95-plus years to hear myself say this. So is living in the moment important or what? Now, it has taken everybody who hears me say this, every split second of their lives to hear me say it. Are we connected or what? (laughs) I love thinking about that. I love thinking about that. Are you have fear about... It, it, it's gotten to a place where it feels like bragging to say you don't fear it. It's a wonder that as much as we know scientifically, as much as we've learned, as much as we continue to learn day by day, we have no guess as to what happens at the conclusion of this game we're playing. Nobody's ever come back. Do we rest? Do we go on? My wife will give you chapter and verse about what she believes will follow. But at the core of what she believes is faith. Nobody's proved it. I can't get there in any direction, as much as I've heard, as we've all heard, about it's this, it's that. But I'm totally satisfied with the wonder of not knowing. I think there's something gorgeous about that. Wow. Norman Lear, an American original. We're all originals. Ah, but you're a special one. Ralph. There's nobody could interview me the way you do. Jesus Christ. It's nice to be loved. (laughs) I'm I'm in awe, I must say. I I really am, Norman. I've interviewed a hell of a lot of people in this world. And and I've I've, I've known you for a long time, and I mean, I'm, I'm... it's just, you know, part, you know what I You think. still give a shit. I mean, the amazing thing, okay, I, I, you know, as a journalist, everybody gives you a line. I've interviewed Fidel Castro. I interviewed Ronald Reagan. I mean, I've interviewed, you know, Gorbachev. I mean, I've interviewed good, the bad, the ugly, the, I mean, uh, you know, all over the world, all over the world. And, and uh, there's always this big bullshit factor. There's always this, this self-glorification. There's always layering on, layering on, layering on, and another plan, and not taking a position, positioning yourself. I mean, you know, it's, it's always there, you know, and you spend hours trying to get with you. And I've known you, as I said, well, I went to see, interview you back there in, in, in the 70s, and I've known you forever. You have gotten along with your... You have a, a great bullshit detector about yourself. 
that that's <laughs> now maybe that informed your comedy. It informed your you know, not maybe it definitely. You know, I think that comes from I'm I am I've never been afraid of saying I don't know, or indicating I don't know. You know, I've never felt I had anything to prove except doing what doing what I do as well as I can do it. That's it for this edition of Sheer Intelligence, where uh, the intelligence certainly came uh, at, at a very high level from Norman Lear. Our producers are Rebecca Mooney and Josh Shear. Our engineers are Kat Yor and Mario Diaz. And we're broadcasting from KCRW in Santa Monica and next week with another edition of Sheer Intelligence. Hey guys, it's Layla, and if you want to hear some inspiring stories about health, wellness, and life itself, join me every Thursday for Layla Ali Lifestyle. I've had wonderful guests like Haley Pomeroy, superstar Russell Wilson, and the amazing Devon Franklin come on the show recently. And coming up in the next few weeks will be Sylvia Tara, PhD, who will be here talking about her book, The Secret Life of Fat. You can download new episodes of Layla Ali Lifestyle every Thursday on the new Podcast One app podcastone.com or subscribe at Apple Podcasts.